Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Speaking of literary, we're just so very happy to be having Red Hen here. When I saw this on our calendar, I saw the um, array of talent um, here. I thought, wow, this is going to be awesome. So to usually we have an event per poet, so to have all four of them together is just truly, I know this is an overused word, awesome. <laughs> um, the way the reading will work is we drew straws. Iran was very brave. We didn't draw straws. I, I I was lying. I don't know why I said that. Um, but they all volunteered. They all volunteered uh, for the positions. And so um, uh, the ever-courageous uh, Ron Cortez will be going first, followed by Francesca Bell, uh, followed by Kim Dower. And to close it off, we'll be uh, with uh, Eloise Klein-Healy. All right. So, yeah. Oh, yes. All right. So you hear that, Eloise? You better be good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're in that right. Okay, so <laughs> okay, so I'll inter be introducing them uh, two at a time, um, and they'll come up and read for about 15 minutes each, um, and it'll be, I'm sure, a uh, beautiful evening. Uh, Ron Cortez, I always love saying your name, Kerchi, Kerchi, Kerchi. Oh my God, I've been saying Cortez for like forever. Kerchi. Okay. <laughs> I look like Cortez. Kerchi. Oh my gosh. I was like, oh Kerchi. And I was telling people I know him so well, too. <laughs> Ron Kirchhoff was um, published widely in the 60s and 70s in such seminal magazines as Kayak and Poetry Now. His first book, The Father Poems, was published in 1973 and was soon followed by many more, in, uh, many more including poetry, prose, novels and verse, and fiction for teenagers. His most recent book, Sex World, was released in fall 2014 by Red Hand Press. Ron is a recipient of grants from the NEA and the California Arts Council and has poems in two volumes of Best American Poetry, volumes 1999 and 2005. His books have been honored by the American Library Association and two have received 10 awards. After teaching for 37 years at the City College in Pasadena, he retired and now teaches some more. <laughs> <laughs> teach us some more at uh, Hamline University in their low-res MFA program for children's writing. He currently lives in Pasadena with his wife, Bianca Richards, but we're very happy to have him right here in Los Feliz. Following Ron will be Francesca, Bell's, uh, Francesca Bell. Her translations are from Arabic and German appears in Circumference, Poetry, in Translation, Massachusetts Review, Mid-American Review, and Rattle. She translated with Noor Nadir al a bed and the poetry collection, A Love That Hovers Like a Bedeviling Mosquito, um, by Palestinian poet Shadha Abu Hanash. Oh, oh my God, I did that. Uh, Bell's own poems appear widely in magazines such as Body L, North American Review, and Prairie Schooner. She has won the 2014 Neil Postman Award for Metaphor from Rattle and is the former. Edit, poetry editor at River Sticks. Also to her credit are three luminous and eccentric children, a half-trained beagle, and some very nice blackberry jam. Please welcome Ron and Francesca. Thank 
You know, when Noel introduced, uh, was introducing us and, and got to Eloise, it was this big whoop. I wonder if you could whoop for me. Be still, be still, be still my heart. Yeah. Am I, should I stand or sit? Well, there's a real, there's, there's a good, there's a good, a, a good reason. So we each have about 15 minutes tonight. Um, I tell Francesca I talk a lot between my poems. So I have five poems, but I may only read four because I stick to the rules, I'll tell you that. Um, I'm gonna open, I love to open for my friends. Uh, many poets don't wanna read first. They all wanna read last, you know, the big finish. And I just like to sort of open the door for my friends and have them come in. It's lovely to see all of you tonight. Um, thank you for coming. This first poem, the title is The Only Violin in Eden. <clears throat> The title comes from a Robin Ekis poem. Do you know Robin Ekis? I was reading her on the, on the Poetry Foundation, which I read every morning, uh, literally every morning, kind of get me going, as they say. Um, I'm really drawn to this, uh, that line, so I wanted to see if I could do something with it, and so here's the poem. The only violin in Eden. Because it isn't shaped like an animal, Eve doesn't know what to make of the violin. Adam says, we should probably ask God. And Eve frowns and says, oh, what does he know that we don't? <laughs> and Adam replies, probably everything, honey. <laughs> Eve likes being called honey. All God ever does is drop by while she's making a nice vegan lunch and ask, what have you two been up to now? Evening comes, Adam dozes off, Eve picks up the violin. A serpent lounging nearby says, God has one like that, and he plays it for the angels, but you could play for Adam. When Eve simply plucks the strings, everything that's been grazing looks up. Even the redder than red tulip leans toward her. Oh, play some more, the serpent says. You sound just like him, <laughs> only better. You know, no one knows what to do about applause at poetry readings. So you can applaud if you want, but if you get tired, then later in the reading, the poems that I read later are jealous. <laughs> so you could wait till the end, unless you're just overcome. So, so I'm reading another poet, this time named Li Zhuang, a Chinese poet. And I took from his poem the title of this book, which is, The Husband Has a Husband. The wife has a wife. I was really drawn to this, and I wanted to see what I could do with it. And here's what I did. The husband has a husband, the wife has a wife. Wouldn't that be nice? Not another couple, but another mate. They're different, not clones. Fair versus stark, maybe. Thin versus substantial. Or with slight differences, but real ones. But the husband belongs to the husband. The wife belongs to the wife. There's no crossing over, no swapping. This isn't 1972 again. One night, they're all watching a scary movie together. Something comes out of the fog. The bowl of popcorn tips over. Nobody bothers. They're completely engrossed, glad that none of them is really in danger. Afterwards, they all stretch and yawn. What if the husband's husband had a husband and the wife's wife had a wife? Then there would be somebody to pick up all that popcorn. So that's what I did with that. <laughs> um, 
One more poem about uh, the monster in the Frankenstein story. Someone pointed out to me once how many poems I'd written about that monster and about Dr. Frankenstein, first name Victor. Um, so I wanted to come at it at a different angle, and this is the angle that I took. It's called, the poem's called The Creature because the monster is called The Creature. He's not called Frankenstein, that's the doctor. Here's the creature. The creature wanders away from the castle. People stare at him. Probably just his outfit, that too short jacket and pants. So he goes window shopping in the village. He admires an Italian wool suit with a tailored silhouette. He steps inside. The salesman stammers that he doesn't have anything in his size and suggests a really big and tall shop a few blocks away. <laughs> that night, the salesman can't eat a bite. He tells his wife how terrible he feels about the way things turned out. Thugs galloping past his shop with torches, a classic lynch mob. He had something in the back room that might have fit the creature. Why didn't he lead him to the three-way mirror? Take a tuck here, a tuck there, to accentuate the broad shoulders. Why didn't he get on his knees with pins in his mouth and make the cuffs break just right? Why didn't he send him out into the night, a new man, ready to face a new world? We always do this, two more. It's called the two-poem warning. <laughs> it is. Haven't you heard that all of your poetry life? We cannot help ourselves. Um, there's no particular setup for this. The title tells you everything you need to know. It's called Pandora's Refrigerator. <laughs> it's late. Pandora can't sleep. She's in pajamas and her hair's a mess. Picture her staring at her refrigerator. The inside is just yogurt and a head of iceberg lettuce, mustard, mayonnaise. Not death, not envy, not the other hardship that flew out of the box Zeus gave her as a present. The box that Ovid called an odious treasure. It was her destiny to open it, a mistake she had to make. But that doesn't help Pandora in the middle of the night, hungry, lonely, remorseful, but she's still beautiful, even in the light from the small bulb in the back by the low-fat cheese. <laughs> and finally, the longest poem of the evening, not that long, called Piecework from the Garment Factory. And I have to set this up for you. Um, I was born in the 40s, so what am I in this poem? 10 or 11 years old. So you have to come back with me to a little town across the river from St. Louis into Illinois, a little town called Collinsville. Um, maybe 20,000 people, blue collar at best. Everybody worked. Both, the parent, my parent, both of my parents worked. All my friends, all their parents worked. There was an enormous place in Collinsville called the Garment Factory. Four stories, <clears throat> white once but now dismal and gray. And in all those four stories, it was full of sewing machines. And behind the sewing machines, women just grinding away. If you rode by it on your bicycle, you heard this enormous hum. One of the things that you could do if you worked in the garment factory and you were one of these women, they made what are called foundation garments. Remember girdles? Yeah, they made girdles. And they made brasiers, and not, but brasiers before they were bras. 
So Brazier's plays into this poem. One of the things these hardworking women could do was take home things that weren't quite finished and finish them on our own sewing machines. This is the piecework, 10 cents a piece. So these hardworking women would take home stuff, nightgowns, brassieres, whatever it was. They'd sew on their own machines, they'd bring them back for a dime each, talk to the foreman, get a couple extra bucks. So that's the long setup and completely true. Uh, here's the poem, piecework from the garment factory. We'd been playing ball with some kids from Webster School and that turned into a fight. So stopping by Scotty's house for Cokes seemed like a good idea. And in Scotty's house, there they were, all those brassieres draped across the sewing machine and the couch, across the radiator and every chair, big brassieres and little brassieres, sturdy brassieres and dainty brassieres. So we dared each other to put them on. <laughs> Scotty found his mother's cigarettes. We held those and empty highball glasses. <laughs> we prowled around in our brassieres, smoking and drinking, saying things we'd heard our mothers say, things like, my feet are killing me. <laughs> There's not enough hours in the day. What's he doing out till 3 a.m.? William's mother was famous for crying, so William cried. We gathered around him in our droopy brassieres. They're all bastards, we said, selfish bastards. We'd be better off without them. It was just another game that didn't end in a brawl until somebody said, let's get out of here. So we helped each other with the snaps and the straps, with the hooks and the eyes. We returned the cigarettes to the pack. We even washed the glasses that our innocent lips had never touched. Thank you very much. It's going to be hard to follow that. I can do it, though, Ron. <laughs> so I'm here to depress you all. <laughs> after that rousing beginning <laughs> by reading a series of love poems. Severance. I'm one of those men, he told me, with a crooked little smile, reaching gingerly across the space between us. Men you read about in history books, he said, as his right hand, the hand with one finger gone AWOL, vanished into the darkness up my skirt and crept beyond my underwear's flimsy barrier. It was 20 years ago. I was 19, like you are now. I nodded and pressed firmly against his touch, trying to figure which part of him I felt, whether it was a finger he still had or the one he'd lost that slipped inside me. When I got back, I didn't tell anyone, just smoked opium in some hotel, bought myself a fur coat. I felt like goddamn Jim Morrison. I felt like he paused, shifting to where he could reach me better, like what I was, a man who killed women and children, fucking infants. 
He halted there to see that he had me at attention. I killed with pleasure whatever I could. I cried out at that, but was by then too far to pull back and shuddered helplessly against his maimed hand. Sure, what I felt was the part of him gone missing. So I was not very good socially. This will come as no surprise to those people in the room who know me. And so I had a series of pen pals, and um, this is a poem to one of my, it's, it's, a, it's a letter poem um, to one of my pen pals from when I, I started writing to him when I was 16, and I think our last letter was exchanged when I was 22. Letter to the man who said I stayed on his brain like a hit of acid that wouldn't kick in. I thought of you this morning, our six years of letters, and the time you kissed me in the Saturday schoolyard. How we swung from side to side, together, away. It was October then, like it is every year, like it is now. And that kiss tastes like green apples and leaves flaming in the gathering dark. Days like today, I swear I hear the small complaint the chains made when we moved apart. Every morning I do my five miles, running up over the ridge and down around the slough. Once a coyote followed almost all the way, and I thought of you. At Whole Foods this noon, the apples were so perfectly green, my cart so full. I wish I could tell you I am still the person you thought you knew, still the girl who likes things broken, who lives her life along a bright and growing fissure, who dances best with a man whose limp keeps time. Six years of letters, and I barely ever saw your face, but I remember your eyes, October blue, and the small sigh it was to wait for you. On LinkedIn, I see you soldiered some again, and I imagine you running in the Iraq desert dusk. When we were young, you sent a tiny Korean flower from your base, pressed between two slips of paper you left blank. I dreamt you lost your hands in war, then cried, trying to lift a black veil from my face. More than 20 years now, no more letters come. Dear Paul, who wrote of bones and broken bottles, I often wake in night's harrowed middle and think how what you wished for me is real. Sweet woman, you wrote, stay hungry. I am hungry famished, so barren I swell, fecund with ruin, vacancy overflowing me as if I have no bounds. After dinner, I push my last late child on the swings out back, my hands empty, then fill again with her as the chains whine the long line of falling.
so this poem is about, um, surprisingly, it will surprise you, it is about the f a former vice president at Microsoft um, that I knew when I was too young to understand how truly fucked up a vice president at Microsoft could be. <laughs> For my first ex-lover to die. I heard this morning my old lover died and I cannot say I loved him, though I may have said so at the time. Cannot say he was a good person or lover or anything other than a man who called me in the small hours, driving back roads drunk in his Ferrari when I was 23 and he was 50, who bought me books and a Lalique clock that's been broken 20 years, who was the dumbest smart person I ever knew, <laughs> crying in his car at four in the morning, wearing a coyote skin coat that reached to his shoes. And I didn't want his money or his cocaine or to be his seventh wife. And I've seldom thought of him except to remember a dark animal crossing his driveway at night and the two staircases in his grand house going up, going down, and how I held him deep in my body and he made a small sad sound. Someone asked me after a reading whether it could possibly be true that he really had a coyote skin coat. <laughs> and he did. And he wore it everywhere. <laughs> this next poem is for my husband, um, who's, he's 21 years older than I am, and that helps you understand this poem. And then the man remembers your body, remembers to love you again, flicks you like a switch, waiting, ready in the room's shadows. Loneliness rises from each reclaimed centimeter, a humiliating eagerness rushing you like a hound loosed in woods, your cry like baying or keening, months of waiting become sound. After, the man sleeps, peaceful, but you are a door he's opened, a path grown over, now beaten back down. You feel his life, which will end before yours, slide slowly away into the dark. Getting away. That fall, we pitched a tent in Montana bear country for two weeks. Every night, whether we made love or not, you slipped your rifle between our bodies. I dreamed of bear paws, awkward as children's hands, innocent looking as they swiped open my skull and woke, face pressed to the gun's steel snout warm as our skin by morning. You were sober mostly that trip, didn't even stagger as you hoisted our cooler up a tree to safety. But I had already seen you, reeking and fiery enough to fracture furniture with just your hands, or to crater the walls 
with the pointed toes of your best boots. I had held you when booze was a sudden blow to your head, and you fell asleep mid-sob, your hard body gone flaccid in my arms. Afternoons in Montana, you fished downstream a ways, while I lay naked on a flat boulder in the middle of the river. On all sides poured water, a constant diminishing caress. I think it's your two-poem warning now. <laughs> um, this is a love poem. Um, it's a persona poem. I, I love to write persona poems. And this is in the voice of Thomas Jefferson. And it's a love poem to Sally Hemings. And um, most people don't know, she, it's not only scandalous that she was his slave, but she was 14 and he was 44 when it's thought that they um, consummated their relationship. If you but stay, Sally, it would be wrong to teach you the letters. Though your skin is light and lovely on your bones, though we are in Paris, and you could walk 14 and beautiful away. I cannot offer my six languages or marriage, but can instruct you in what I cultivate in the dark split rose of Monticello. All men were created equal, but you, my child, were begotten, made, as I make hollyhocks to bloom straight and blushing, even in the shade. And I'm going to close with a list poem. And some lists we write in order to remember, but this is a list that I wrote in order to forget. Things I'd prefer to forget. How you placed each gun in my hands like a live thing, a coiled spring, a promise. The 45 with its heft and kick, its full clip I learned to slide in, then empty. The sound when you cocked your shotgun in the house, it said, put up your hands, bitch. How I jumped, unable to swim into the cold of Bitterroot Lake because you wanted me to water ski. Your photographs where I don't show, only the rope, the black lake, the spray of something being dragged. That you could shoot anything, gophers, songbirds, grouse you brought home for dinner. I hated to eat them, their tiny breast meat, their easy snap bones. Snakes you killed as a boy with your little bow, standing on their tails to pierce them. Your hands clasped around my throat during love. All those flowers you sent in apology. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next readers are Kim Dower and Eloise Klein-Healy. Kim has published four highly acclaimed collections of poetry, all with Red Hand Press, Air Kissing on Mars, Slice of Moon, 
and last train to the missing planet. Her most recent collection, just published in April, Sunbathing on Tyrone Powers Gray, was called Exuberant, Sexy, and Sobering, Remarkable Poems, Finding Kim at the Top of Her Game, says Chris Krauss, author of I Love Dick. Yeah, that was kind of funny, wasn't it? <laughs> um, widely anthologized and nominated for four Pushcart Prizes, Kim Dower was City Poet Laureate of West Hollywood from October 2016 to October 2018. She teaches at the West Hollywood Library at Antioch University and will begin Monday night classes this fall for UCLA Writers Extension. To end the evening, Eloise Klein-Healy, she is the author of seven books of poetry and three spoken word recordings, which are really remarkable to listen to, by the way. Uh, she was the founding chair of the MFA uh, uh, in creative writing at Antioch, Los Angeles, where she is distinguished professor of creative, creative writing emerita. Healy directed the women's studies program at Cal State Northridge and taught in the feminist studio workshop at the Women's Building in Los Angeles. She is the founding editor of Arc Toy Books an imprint of Red Hand Press, specializing in the work of lesbian authors. In December 2012, Healy was appointed the first City Poet Laureate of Los Angeles. Healy was born in El Paso, Texas, and spent her childhood in Remsen, Iowa, before moving with her family to North Hollywood, California. Thank God for that. Uh, she attended Providence High School, Immaculate Heart College, and Vermont College. She currently lives in Sherman Oaks, California, with Colleen Rooney and their dog, Nikita. Please welcome Kim. Hi, everybody. It's great to... Hi, Ronnie. So I would like to say um, a big thank you to Red Hand Press. I mean, we are all four of us. Yeah, Red Hand Press authors. And um, it's just a joy to read with Ron and Francesca and Eloise. Uh, it's a great pleasure. So this is my new book. And you can see I chose way too many poems to read tonight. I mean, I just didn't know what to choose because I've been on this three-month sort of odyssey book tour. and. I tend to think I'm boring people with reading the same poems, even though these are your different people. <laughs> Hi, Deborah. Um, so I just don't want to, you know, read the same ones. So I thought I'd try some different ones tonight, which could be a mistake. But uh, and Ron, my friend, said, "Don't read any sad poems about death, because people don't want to hear those." You said that to me. Um, <laughs> even though one of my best poems is about death, but I'm not, I'm not going to read it. Uh, I know. Okay, I will. Um, so uh, this book is dedicated to uh, an old teacher that I had named Thomas Lux, who recently passed away. And this poem is for him. He said, I wrote about death. And I didn't mean to. This was not my intent. I meant to say how I loved the birds how watching them lift off the branches, hearing their song helps me get through the gray morning. When I wrote about how they crash into the small, dark places that only birds can fit through, layers of night sky, pipes through drains, how I've seen them splayed across gutters, 
piles of feathers stuck together by dried blood, how once my car ran over a sparrow, though I swerved, the road was narrow, the bird not quick enough, dragged it under my tire as I drove to forget. Bird disappearing part by part, beak, slender feet, fretful, hot, I did not mean to write about death, but rather how when something dies, we remember who we love, and we die a little too. We who are still breathing, we who still have the energy to survive. So, um, you know, people all think that poetry is autobiographical. I mean, Francesca's is, for sure. I can tell you that. Um, um, I just get that feeling, you know. But mine is not. Uh, I make all this shit up. So um, here's one I haven't really read at readings, but somebody wrote me an email. You get these emails from strangers, which you think, oh, how nice, but it isn't, all right? <laughs> like, I really like that poem, Appliances. So for whoever you are out there, appliances. I love to turn them all on. Sit in the kitchen, close my eyes, listen to the music of machines. Hear them do my work for me, wash my clothes, clean my dishes, dissolve my garbage. I bought a lawn mower just to ride around in. Hear its hum, pretend to trim the grass I don't have. It's smooth sailed over the concrete down the block next to my street, my slow moving vehicle. Where are the cows when you need one? Where are the chickens? My toaster is my favorite appliance. I can decide how to set it depending on my taste. I like it medium to dark, brown enough so I know it's toast but not burnt. I don't like those black little flecks sprinkled across my plate. I've never owned an electric knife. Too much margin for error. <laughs> My father never used one to carve the turkey. Instead, he used the knife he'd had since he got married right after the war, a wedding gift from some uncle I never met. It's stainless steel, and he sharpened it religiously. I could see it shine from across the room. Real cooks don't use electric knives, he'd say. They make them better now, with batteries. If he were alive, I might buy him one just to try. I would not tell him about my tractor or talk about the cows. See, now that wasn't true. Um, we live in LA, a lot of us, and we frequent uh, health food stores, don't we? We do. 
And I, I go to uh, Erwan <laughs> almost every other day. <laughs> uh, and it really annoys me, actually. And I wrote a poem that's in another book called The People at the Health Food Store Don't Look Healthy. <laughs> and that's before Erwan <laughs> rebuilt itself. And now it's very, very fancy and expensive and annoying. Sorry to Erwan. Does anyone here work at Erwan? Or does anyone own Erwan who's here? <laughs> uh, Beverly. Do you go there? Venice. That's even worse, I bet. Unruly aura. The cashier at the health food store tells me I have a beautiful aura. Wait, I tell her. If you want to see a really beautiful aura, wait until I've taken my Renew Life Ultimate Flora Probiotic. <laughs> After that, my aura will knock your socks off. She smiles at me and rings me up. My money has a beautiful aura, too. My dollar bills float out of my pink wallet. The man behind me swells from the heat I generate. Each step I take brings me closer to God, the final fabulous aura. Take my hand, I tell her, squeeze my aura. It's hungry and looking for someone to devour. She's never trusted happiness. Maybe it was something her mother said one morning as the young girl dipped her donut into a glass of whole milk. Powdered sugar still on her lips, her mother tells her, don't get used to this. <laughs> That's a true story. It's summertime. I'll read a summertime poem. Townies. Do you know what townies are? Do we have them here? David, do you know, are you a townie? No. no. So, you know, I grew up in New York City. And um, if you went to camp on Long Island or, you know, if you went to Connecticut, the boys who lived in those towns were called townies. And they were different. Townies, don't talk as much as city boys. Their arms are bigger. They can drive a stick. They don't care about restaurants or perfume. They like to do it all the time, <laughs> anywhere. They have things they keep in boxes, like old snake skins or buttons from swap meets. I loved one once. He liked to do it in my parents' summer cottage when they were out getting vegetables. He'd scoop me up like a fireman, saving my life, toss me on the calico print couch, damp with salt air, my ass burned from rubbing against the coarse fabric. He gave me a hickey the size of a heart. I watched it fade like the sunset 
as I took the ferry back home. That's not a true story. Francesca laughs at everything I say. Come with me everywhere I go. So um, I've written a lot of poems for my father and my mother. And um, this book has a lot of poems about my dad. And this is one of them. It's called Thirst. I will say that some poems, as we all know, a lot of poets here, take um, a long time to write and get right, and you work on them, and you put them away, and you take them out months later, and you keep working. This is one of those poems that came through me, like as Anne Sexton says, your poems come from God, and they just come through you sometimes. And this one was one like that. Um, and it's called Thirst. My father never saw my house, though without his modest savings, we never could have bought it. My father didn't know his grandson past the age of 10, but today at 28, my boy has his eyes and many of his talents. My father died thirsty. We couldn't fill his needs. No one could. He had a big personality, my mother would say, sucked the air out of a room, needed you to pay attention to his every word, a wall of talk we wanted to jump over. My father could tell a good joke, do the accents, had the timing, why wasn't that appreciated? He could sell anything, untangle a knot out of the most delicate chain. His stuff looked nice, his paintings framed. He'd serve pats of butter on a dish, restaurant style. Our people leave us, and we let them go. They fade into the tapestry of the dead, an occasional memory slapping us in the face, tapping us on the shoulder, kissing the breeze by our cheek. We wait for the wind to blow these reminders like it did for me today, just now in my garden that he never saw but would have loved. Even though my roses are struggling, their white petals dropping. So thirsty they are, so ready for a drink. So there you go. I don't know if he would have liked that or not, but you just don't know these things. Um, so let's see. I wanted to read one I, I've, I've never read. Um, uh, the, here's a poem. Um, so Terry Wolverton, who is my dear teacher, I went to Terry's workshop every Saturday morning for 10 years, and they were some of the greatest Saturday mornings of my life. And, the, and here's a poem that I brought to class a long, long time ago. And it, was, it started with my teacher, Terry, tells me. I took that out, Terry. I took it out of the poem. This is what happens, you see. Because um, it didn't really need a teacher to tell me in the poem, I realized. But here's the poem without you, but it's for you. <laughs> and it's called Bee Sting. 
Remember that? I've heard it said that when you get stung by a bee, it means you will gain new insight. When I got stung minding my own business, sitting on the warm sand, all I felt was an ember burning a hole in my back, a frantic itch I couldn't reach. I ran to the lifeguard, crying for him to remove the stinger. He told me, never touch. Use a credit card to scrape the venom off. One brisk move. Eradicate the barb. Be certain to get it all, or the poison might spread into your head, where the insight is supposed to go instead. <laughs> to this day, Part of the stinger remains lodged under my shoulder blade. The hallucinations vary. <laughs> right now, I'm on a boat sailing backward, all of us on deck lounging, nursing drinks, lemon wedges swarming with bees, all of us singing songs with long words, wearing colorful bathing suits on our way to meet the queen who rules beyond this life in this forgiving hive of our new future. Thank you. And I would like to introduce the ever-magnificent, beloved Eloise Klein-Healy. I think I'm the shortest one yet. Can I just bend this a bit? Hello, how are you? Um, I have many things to say about being here. Um, not not the worst is this is just the greatest place, the Skylight uh, Books. I, I have um, always enjoyed wandering around, and I end up over at the poetry area, um, or else other strange things that are um, not languages. I'm going to try something today. Um, and as you see, I've got to draw things around to get it to you because I made a big mistake for my artwork here. This is the group that I'm supposed to start with, with this one, because I got tired of taking these little stickers and putting them everywhere. So now I've really got a problem. I could, like, go <laughs> like that. So I'm going to try what I can do anyway. Thank you very much. Um, another thing that I should say about you is approximately five years ago, um, I had a very bad experience in which um, I was to talk in the morning and my friend said something to me and I just went blah, 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 blah. And my friend said, what are you doing? Are you kidding people? I, blah, 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 blah. So she said, oh, um, this is a problem. And it ended up that I did have a problem. I had completely lost my mind at this area called aphasia. I lost all my um, language, which was pretty spooky. And I lost my ability to maintain my balance. So I had to relearn how to be. 
And I don't think that's really different in any way for people who are poets. <laughs> you know, you really suffer and things are tough and then you get it better. And, and that was the best lucky part I had with my friend, um, Dr. Betty McMicken, who promised me to use my language back. And it was um, as tough as hell, but she's good. So here we are. Oh, there it goes. Pardon? No, no, um, because I just have a big problem. I'm going to cut the pages anyway. Okay, this is one called what I thought was the beginning. Going for words. Pencil, pen, power, patience. Can I begin plan or plain or please? There's no beginning or end. Anything now, new, native, nonchalant, nervous. I know more about me now, aphasia. Um, here we go with one called Problem. I should say with this book, it's the five line poems. It isn't just that you didn't learn something. You had to learn a lot of them. I had to end up writing 118 of them. Maybe I should get a second set of the others. <laughs> Problem. When first I wrote a poem, I couldn't change anything. Didn't plan to edit or to write another. Brain fry was my reality time. Step two wasn't there yet. I'm just going to try and fly along and not make a big deal. Prize. Ho-hum is just a word, but what the body knows is written down and language is the prize. But what more could you want? Surprise yourself and never surmise. Does that mean anything? <laughs> okay. What the hell? Oh, I'm sorry. Here's what I said. My brain needs me to knock out the haziness. But don't cut the brain out. Work on it. Just keep working each day. Okay, I'm going to go to Porcupine and then we're going to jump someplace else. <laughs> this has a joke to it. Porcupine. My quote-unquote brain word sounded like a porcupine or maybe porque. Did I play between two words anyway? It's almost how great regular words pop. That's what really is like a tune, a swing, a sway. These two songs in my head anyway. Oh. Off we go. Um, what I have here is a bigger list that I'm going to 
disappear myself. But this is about what I am kind of under the category of called aphasia, um, which was one step further from um, Betty to this one. My brain sizzled April 23rd. The morning before the loss of my language, I said something kind of quote unquote brain mist, but Colleen kept talking to me, me not knowing what I said, even when I said it. My own missing ideas, nothing mattered anymore. Nothing spoke to me about me, about my sweetheart, Colleen. I was missing, but alive anyway. How can I describe that right there? The language is really the trick, you know? How did we live in these ways? Patient. Two nurses sang songs with me back and forth along our walk. Me crying a lot, sighing, then smiling, singing along. At 5 a.m., the doctor asked, do you feel pain? How are you walking? I know he is speaking to me, but for me, I'm not even able to remember my name. Aphasia is not what I can't say. I know where I am, but don't call it a table. I also don't know how to say lamp or couch, chair, armoire, bathroom, dishwasher, no. I first practice what's missing in the kitchen or living room. I've had to practice with my sink, 5 a.m. teapot and dining room table near the microwave. Haven't even practiced the den, the office, the bedroom, and the stars above. My list needs this help. Colleen repeats it and links my words linking the ones I used before I lost it all. Okay, here's something for Kate and Mark. Kate and Mark, we know, are red hen bosses. Hi, everybody. Here's how I learned to get my shit together. In the old days, I've had four or five poetry events to meet, quote, on the road again, unquote. To have published at least four books, I mean seven books, sorry. My brain waves charged me, but to teach me because it had left me. Now it's easier to frame rewritten words. Learned one word after another, and yes, now it's my new world in view reminding me that Keats stared into how life and death met. I've learned to learn aphasia because I practice my skills. I don't give up on my rebring. So I love, love, love it. Surprise, along this year, another phase, new book came and I used all the skills I'd loved.
Okay, this is going to be one last thing for my friend Colleen. My lips touching the palm of your open hand sustain me. Cup your hand so close to my mouth that you'll feel the wild river whose bank you are. I open again the palm of my hand and you offer to keep me. Never the end ever again. Thank you. Isn't that a wonderful evening? Isn't that a wonderful evening? Of course, we would not be here if it weren't for the fact that um, Redhead put out all this wonderful work. At this time, I'd like to bring up the Redhead staff, Kate and Toby, just to uh, come and say hello, and we can applaud them. Monica, everyone. <laughs> come on up. And simply thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Kate, did you want to say a few words? Well, I, I just want to say, first of all, that uh, we really love being here at Skylight. Uh, Red Hen has so many wonderful memories. Um, two weeks after Mark, our publisher, had open heart surgery at Sunset, Sunset Kaiser down the street. He had his book launch here at Skylight. And um, it was a wonderful event, and, and many of you who are here were here for that event. Uh, it's, it's great to see so many wonderful faces here um, who, who are readers. Um, I think all of us who are in the literary world uh, do this for love. We, we love stories and we love poems. I love that last poem because it reminds me that we do all this for love. Um, I, I just want to point out that, speaking of love, um, a bunch of the Red Hen staff are here tonight because there were going to be so many Red Hen writers here. Uh, this is Monica Fernandez, who's our media person. This is Nicholas Nino, who runs our development and takes care of the benefit. This is Rebecca who uh, takes care of, she's my editorial assistant. This is Toby, uh, who's the deputy director and runs our queer programming and our queer. Um, she also has, do you want to say something about Quill? <laughs> Hello, everyone. Um, you have your, one of your judges here. Oh, yes. David Francis is right here. He just judged our last Quill Award for Summer of the Cicadas that's coming out next year. Um, it was actually uh, Eloise and Colleen's uh, imprint, Arctoy, that inspired me to, uh, to found Quill, which is a public, queer publishing series. Um, but since I'm not Eloise, rather than choose the manuscripts myself, uh, <laughs> I instead choose awards that I, uh, I choose judges that I trust um, <laughs> to help me with those finalists. Um, and I thank you so much for that inspiration, and uh, yeah, thank you all very much for coming. And thank you for tonight's reading, readers. That was amazing. Yeah, thank you. Yay.
Congratulations to everybody, and thank you very much for coming. Have a great evening. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.